Hushlings, before we begin Season 6, we would like to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your support, listenership, and patronage. The past five seasons have been nothing short of a blast. We enter this season with a topic that is extremely sensitive and has graphic discussion of historical events and mass death. If this topic is uncomfortable for you, please listen to one of our lighter-hearted debriefings. Or, if you have not listened to Chapter 1, we encourage you to do that now. We will now proceed with Debriefing 51, Holocaust Denial, Chapter 2. Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. Greetings, hushlings, hustronauts, and hushtillions. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And as always, we're joined by our professor of world history, Slick Frank Sanders. Slick Frank Sanders here. What is going on, my people? The boys are looking dapper. Yeah. Season six, guys. We made it. Clean slate. We buried the hatchet from the previous season, and we are here. Did we have beef with the previous season? That we no, our previous season was... No. I think we had a banger. In our premiere installment of this season, we're going to be capping off our research project on Holocaust denial. We will be exploring some of the facts of World War II and the Holocaust, the Nazis' rise to power, the psychology to becoming a Nazi sympathizer, some information on Adolf Hitler, as well as Hemrick Himmler, and other terrifying leaders of the party. Additionally, we look at the treatment of European Jews throughout Europe. We look at the ghettos in Poland and other places, the systematic movement to camps, as well as the camps themselves, and we also take a look at the death tolls, the Nuremberg trials, and other views and theories that we found on Reddit. Before we reopen the history books, be sure to check us out on all our social medias. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also join us over at our Discord server, where we host the X-Files, and uh, we're doing watch parties every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Roughly 300 or so episodes of Mulder and Scully getting Skulder and Mully. Smoldering Fox Mulder. <laughs> our Twitch is also taken off. It's getting a little active. Slick Frock was on there streaming. I have streamed a few times, so we're starting to get going over there. Make sure to check us out on Twitch. You can find us under the same name, Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. We'll be talking conspiracies and playing video games. Come chat with us. Come hang out. You can also find everything, all of our links to our social medias and all that jazz over at the official website of the Hush Hush Society, www.hushhushsociety.com. Yes, there you can find all of our episodes from our debriefings to our declassified discussions and cryptid chronicles. You can buy some new threads for the family or yourself with our Hush Hush apparel store, read some news about the show. And read some new conspiracies in our thick Triple C blog section. And that ability to drop the ever-coveted review 
on Spotify, Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, wherever the hell you want to do it. Give us a five-star yes, rating. Yes, do, do it. Do it. You can also earn your cloak and become a patron today with a small donation of $5 a month, which will release your soul as you ascend to become a true hushling. There you'll get unlimited access to exclusive debriefings, get steamy with cryptid erotica readings narrated by Mystery Mike, and monthly conspiratorial news in the Frog Factor, which includes myself and Declassified Dave. Over at our Patreon, when you join, you can also get merch drops, exclusive happenings, and early debriefing release privileges. So you get the exclusive debriefings a day early, I believe. You can check that out over at www.patreon.com forward slash hush hush society. Yes. Well, boys, what say you? Let's get back at it. For those of you that remember, we did chapter one of the Holocaust Denial, and this is chapter two, so we're going to dive right back into it. Here's a little recap. Way back in January, in our 41st debriefing, the start of season five, we covered the definition and history of Holocaust Denial or Holocaust Revisionism, the major viewpoints of why some people believe that the Holocaust never happened or was a completely inaccurate portrayal of how it's written in the history books. We also tapped into some of the methods of how people were systematically put to death, some of the counter-arguments, we talked about the crematoriums themselves, as well as all the prejudices that make up Judeophobia and hate towards the Jewish population. And of course, how could we forget Henry Ford's anti-Semitic bullshit and the protocols of the elders of Zion? Can you imagine somebody knocking on your door and handing you that? <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses, they come up to your door. Oh, hey, uh, do you have a moment? Are you are yeah, you busy right that's now? That's a call. Well, um, I'm watching Dateline and drinking a beer, but yeah, I got a couple hours. Why don't you come inside? <laughs> and then they just hand you a pamphlet of the elders. <laughs> of I think it's important that we glance at a brief history of how Jewish people were treated and expelled from every single area they've lived in throughout history. We all know that they were obviously exiled from Alexandria and Egypt in the 400s BC, as well as in the 200s where they were booted from Carthage. In the 6th century, they were kicked out of France, and just 100 years later from Spain. In the late 1100s, they were exiled from Rome, and additionally they had to wear a badge. Sounds familiar. In the 13th century, King Edward accused them of counterfeiting money and creating coin scandals. Additionally, Hungary and Poland passed laws to deny Jewish people to hold political positions. They were also banished from England, Italy, Germany, and surprisingly, over 100,000 were murdered in Bavaria, as well as being expelled from Switzerland and Spain. Mm. So essentially, that's a holocaust, right? I'd say so. Yeah, 100,000. And specifically from 1492 to 1727, most European countries ridded their populations of Jewish people. Even during the 1800s in the great state of Tennessee. <laughs> Mind you, a lot of these statistics were from the Protocols of Zion. So I have to ask you both, why is this continuation throughout all of history? Why were they exiled from Alexandria in the first place? Because that's kind of where it started, right? I would say probably because the center of knowledge at that time, if you're talking about maybe the library of Alexandria. It must go farther back in history than that. 
because when you're looking at Egypt itself, they were essentially like what a paganistic religious culture, kind of like Rome and Greece. They had multiple gods for multiple things, and Judaism is not. But when did Judaism switch from what it originally is? Please forgive me. I'm not a professional in religious history, but when the Christian aspect came involved is really, I think, when you really start to see that persecution because Rome making them wear badges, that's post Christ, correct? In in a certain yeah. aspect mm. before and after. Yeah, it's kind of odd to look at how they were pushed out of pretty much everywhere. And that is a good question. Why is that? What about their religion or about their beliefs was so outside of the norm? And maybe you're right. Maybe that monotheistic religious aspect of it clashed with all of those polytheistic beliefs back then, especially in Egypt. It's a very interesting thing, and it's very sad for an entire history of people to never really belong anywhere. And when they finally do feel like they belong somewhere, they go and they get ousted. It's not just a World War II thing. It's not just a Holocaust thing. It's the entire history of these people. Yeah, because in our first episode, we talked about the prejudices, and that went back very deep in history. Some of the things that people thought and the beliefs, and I think a lot of it kind of is based off of fear. If you're afraid of another group of people or a certain type of people, you're generally going to hold that type of prejudice. So there must have been some either inherent fear of them or or they're just lower. I, I don't understand what would cause them to be exiled from everywhere and not be able to hold political positions, have to wear badges. There was something that every one of these cultures, pretty much everywhere, was against or had animosity towards. Yeah, look back at some of the things that we talked about in episode one of this, where they believe them to be less than human, pretty much, and believe that they were eating children or drinking the blood of children, and that carried on. And it kind of makes me wonder if that carried into maybe some Q thoughts when you start talking about Pizzagate and you talk about the harvesting of blood of children. Is that a continuation of that hatred towards the Jewish people? Because if you look at the top brass of Hollywood in particular, you have a lot of Jewish people, Jewish producers, directors, anything like that, actors. So I wonder if that prejudice did carry through throughout the ages. And now the Q movement is kind of that updated version of the, oh, they're putting blood in their matzah. The children's blood is in their matzah. That's an interesting look on it. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, I think if it is if it is Q, they are at the lowest point, the most infantile point of what the actual belief system is. You see it so much, and I don't want to divert often, but I have a quick story that I saw not too long ago here in California when I was out. I was at Costco, and somebody said the K word to somebody. Klondike bar. It made me very sad hearing that. <laughs> yeah, racism is very so much alive and well in the world but especially in america well moving forward let's crack open the official docket and take a look at the facts 
Prior to the outbreak of the German Great Depression in 1929 and 1930, a group known as the National Socialist German Workers' Party, that's a mouthful, you can boil it down to just calling them Nazis, was on the far right of the German political spectrum. Yes, and you have to take into account that Germany was in hard times in the early 30s, and the global economic downturn had taken a heavy toll on the country, and millions of people were out of employment. Millions of others joined the unemployed due to their loss of industry and military as well as Germany's national shame following the loss of World War I. The Nazis promised to restore German cultural values. They wanted to overturn the Treaty of Versailles' terms and counter the imagined threat of a communist insurrection. They also wanted to bring jobs back to the German people and restore Germany to its, quote, rightful place as a respected world power also, they would like to restore the full Aryan race. Now, I'm not one for maybe drawing correlations, but listening to what was just said about Germany during a recession in the 1920s and early 30s, does that sound familiar to Make anyone? Make America great again! Make America great again! <laughs> Is that what you're talking about? That's where we're going, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm going. And you got to think about it. You take a country that is in turmoil with a group of people that is failing pretty much. Everything is going down the tubes. Life seems very bleak. And then you have another group that you can blame it on. And you can say, yeah, if these people weren't here, then imagine how amazing we could be. And imagine how great we could be. And this country is going down the tubes because of those people. So it's like passing the buck onto an entire race of people or an entire group of people to take the blame off of any wrongdoings that you may have done to your own country or to yourself. Yeah, except the difference is, is that your own government's not creating it in the 1920s. Hitler and other Nazi propagandists were extremely effective in channeling the populace's despair their paranoia, which ultimately led to the horrors administered to the Jewish populations, as well as the communists, social democrats, and those whom the Nazis deemed guilty for signing both the November 1918 armistice and the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler and other Nazi speakers meticulously tailored their speeches for each individual audience. When speaking to business people, for example, the Nazis minimized anti-Semitism and instead stressed anti-communism and the restoration of German territories lost or pushing economic gains. Isn't that wild? Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. Not here. Not now. It's kind of a tactic that continues to this day is you do tailor your speeches to a specific group or to specific people. So there are these massive, massive correlations between an economic downturn in Germany and what was to rise to power in the 1930s and what we saw coming into the 2020s or a little before. You have this group of people that is very already feeling like shit for what's going on in their country and how they feel. And then you have a group of people or a person coming in and giving the speech of exactly what they want to hear when they want to hear it. And then they go to a different group and they give them an entirely different speech, again, telling them what they want to hear when they want to hear it. So that's how you take over a fucking country. 
Interestingly enough, when talking to soldiers, veterans, and other nationalist groups, they stressed military expansion. When talking to farmers in the northern part of the state, they were told that the Nazi administration would fix plummeting crop prices, not to mention new territory, like we said before. And on the 30th of January in 1933, President Hindenburg appointed Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany. And that's really when shit hit the fan. Just to go back, I know this isn't exactly what we were correlating the similarities to, but it reminds me of the whole fracking ordeal that happened in the past election run when we had President Biden going to one speech and saying that we're not going to frack. Fracking's not going to be a thing anymore, Green New Deal. And then he would go to a fracking state and be like, ah, let's rev up fracking. Just pulling in the votes from different demographics, depending on what you're saying. We're not doing fracking. So is that contributing to gas prices or is there something else there? Ah, there's something else there. Yeah. That's for another episode. Stay tuned. (laughs) How did an Austrian-born Hitler serving as a lance corporal in the German army during World War I, become one of the most brutal dictators? Interesting question. I think we just set the precedent for it. In 1919, he joined the German Workers' Party, the predecessor of the Nazi Party, and was named Nazi Party leader two years later in 1921. Hitler was imprisoned for five years after attempting to gain governmental authority in a failed coup in Munich in 1923. During his time in the penitentiary, he wrote his political manifesto, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. He then acquired widespread support after his release in 1924 by advocating pan-Germanism, anti-Semitism, and anti-communism through a charismatic charade of Nazi propaganda. I mean, he he mm. can talk. Can he, he though? That man. It seems like he's screaming. Maybe he doesn't talk. Maybe he just screams and yells. Maybe that was his thing. But would it be more off-putting if he was very calm when he was talking about like killing Jews and restoring the Aryan race in Germany back to its greatness? Well, no, you wouldn't have pulled in the masses. He was a part of the group of people that had that angst and anger for what happened to his country. And he wasn't even born in that country, so that's a little weird. He had angst and hatred, and he took it to the top level that he could possibly get. Think about it. At the time, these guys were dressed up as, like, Boy Scouts, so he just wanted to be part of the club. But their club was onto some mean things. I'm still a little bit confused as to how Hitler's come up, right? throughout his speeches and screaming how anti-semitism was connected to restoring the country i haven't really like put that together yet so a lot of that was based in seeing the jewish population in germany and austria and surrounding countries doing well Mm. in Mm. whatever ventures they were a part of and that is kind of spurring this hatred in the blame game of well if they're doing well and we're not doing as well then they must be doing something to harm us or they must be doing something that is causing us to fail that's a big part of it is is having that ability to tell the german people it's not our fault 
it's obviously the fault of these people and being able to pass that blame and being able to redirect people's hatred and people's anger really towards an enemy look at any country that has a military or any country that has any kind of propaganda america included we love to create a villain because that is what you do things go wrong you don't take accountability for these things look at our presidents look at our politicians they never turn around and say this was our fault this is what we did wrong they turn around and they say well this country is to blame china's to blame russia's to blame putin's to blame north korea whatever it may be they want to point a finger at someone else oh it was my predecessor my predecessor did this the entire cabinet of people that surrounded the leadership created these problems it's definitely a move a political move that is made throughout all of history nobody takes accountability for anything because you'll see that the people that take accountability for doing something wrong and taking the fault they end up in the gallows or in the guillotine or wherever the history always comes down on those righteous people who take blame and take accountability for what they did but hitler and the nazi party definitely had it all nailed down and in his own mind the jewish people were the ones to blame it's kind of similar to the build the wall thing that people are harping about. Blame the Mexicans because they're stealing our jobs. Well, what jobs are they stealing? Picking strawberries in a farm in the Central Valley of California or working in brutally hot kitchens and anywhere in the country? I could never understand that also. But that, again, is the pointing the finger thing because you need to create a villain. You need to create someone that is the fault of all the wrongdoings, the fault of everything that's going terribly, terribly wrong in your economy, in your country, in your socioeconomic plan, you have someone to blame. Mexico is an easy one. What are you going to do? You can't blame Canadians. Canadians aren't jumping the border in droves. So what do you do? Oh, we have an influx of Mexican people coming over the border and they're coming to take our jobs. It's like the, you know, the famous line, they're taking our jobs, that type of thing. But like Dave said, what jobs are they taking of yours? You're not going to go out there and work for $6 an hour and work in the beating hot sun in California or Texas, working tobacco fields or working fruit fields or vegetable fields or whatever it may be. You're not going to go into a kitchen and work for 15 hours a day for $9 an hour under the table. You're not going in and seeing a doctor, a Mexican doctor walks in and he goes, Hey, you know, I'm illegal, but I know what I'm doing. Immediately you're thinking, Oh, well, I guess he took an American job. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that's not the way that it's, it's funny too because it's always from somebody who like is a cashier at Seven Eleven. Nothing wrong with being a cashier at Seven Eleven, but it's always that person that's like, "Man, they're coming to take my job." Like they're not. They're really not. You're still here, right? <laughs> Hitler regularly accused world capitalism and communism of being part of a Jewish plot to take over the world, much like we just mentioned. After years of broadcasting the Nazi rhetoric, the Nazis began relocating Jews in Poland and other surrounding countries to segregated areas of cities, ghettos, as we previously mentioned, or to concentration camps. FEMA camps. FEMA camps. FEMA camps. FEMA camps. Have you guys ever seen video or photographs of 
ghettos, the Polish mm-hmm. ghettos and German ghettos. Crazy yeah. stuff. They were packed in there and living kind of in squalor. They were not treated well in those areas at all. No, it was definitely very underprivileged communities. It was dirty. Buildings were not up to code, I'm sure of it. It wasn't Well, the nice problem place. was is that they were just regular normal people and they were stripped of everything and everything taken away. So imagine living in your apartment block and everybody that lives there gets shoved into two apartments and there's 25 apartments in there and all your belongings are taken away. What was life like after the implementation of these ghettos? And I really don't understand how people can argue that the Holocaust didn't happen or something like this didn't happen when you just said there's photographic evidence and video to support that there was something going on, at least in Germany and Poland, in their cities. As Mike said, ghetto life was terrible. Overcrowding was widespread, and a single apartment may house multiple families. Is this where we get the word ghetto from? I believe so. It's gotta be. It up? It's gotta be. Where did that word come Let's from? You're thinking 1930s. When was the use of the word ghetto before the 1930s? Dave's looking it up. Dave, get it. The name ghetto probably derived from an iron foundry in the neighborhood that was first used in Venice in 1516. In that year, an area for Jewish settlement was set aside, shut off from the rest of the city, and provided with Christian watchmen. It became the model for the ghettos in Italy. Yes. Holy shit. Hushlings, I don't know how many of you knew the origins of the word ghetto, but yeah, it definitely goes back that far and used in the same exact way, an area that was quarantining Jewish people. I wonder at what point it made the switch to not represent an area that was specifically for quarantining jewish people and you know it's now the modern day ghetto when did it make that switch yeah it had to become a kind of generalized word at some point for just an area that had a large population packed into a small area Mm. plumbing in the ghettos failed quickly as human waste was dumped on the streets along with trash Diseases spread quickly in such cramped, filthy quarters, and people were starving to death. The Germans purposefully starved the locals, only allowing them to buy just a tiny amount of bread, potatoes, and lard. What are you making with that? Grits. It's probably a banging ass stew. I don't know. Yeah, definitely a stew. Mm. You definitely got lard and potatoes. Bread, potato, dipping, pudding. Dipping bread. Tens of thousands of people perished in the ghettos. Children were orphaned every single day, and with no utilities like heat, the winters proved even more deadly as many froze to death. For example, children in the Warsaw Ghetto would even crawl through tiny holes in the ghetto wall to sneak food to their family. That is fucking sad. Smugglers who were detected were harshly punished and most frequently killed. This is depicted in the film The Pianist. Is it the pianist or is it pianist? The pianist. The what? The pianist. The pianist. 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 With Adrian Brody. A person who plays a piano. Pianist? Adrian. Yeah, pianist. You're Am saying, I saying pi- it wrong? You're saying pianist. 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 All right, All right fair enough. 
in that movie, there's a little kid who was bringing food into like a sewer hole, like five inch by five inch or something like that. I think it might have been bigger. I think he was trying to climb. Five inch? How small was this kid? My memory is, mis- is mistaken. It, it was probably 12 inches by like eight inches or something. And this kid was trying to get through it and he got caught and pulled through. And I'm not sure if he died in the movie, but I, I, I think he did. And they showed some of that brutal aspect of that. If you really want to see the the Hollywood representation of it, that movie has a lot of historical accuracy. You watched it? Yeah. And it has Adrian Brody. And it has Adrian Brody. I actually own it. The Germans ordered the formation of a ghetto in the northeastern portion of Lodz on February 8th in 1940. Over 160,000 Jews or more than third of Lodz's total population are confined to a tiny portion of the city. And on January 16th of 1942, about 7,000 Jews were taken to Chelmno and murdered. In July and August, the majority of the surviving ghetto population was transported to the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp. Unfortunately, the Lodz ghetto was purposefully eliminated. Hitler had designated over 70 camps immediately after becoming chancellor in 1933. So this was his plan from the beginning. Yeah, like right out of the gate, 70 camps. So you're talking from 1933, because we jump to 1940. So in seven years, all this was taking place before even the majority of when the Americans actually broke into World War II, which was very late in the war. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, what a lot of people's history remembers. Once the Americans are there, this was all happening. But I think we failed to realize that for 10 years, this was going on. And there's so many dates to go through that it was nauseating. So you had to kind of pick and choose which ones were very big population centers. Because a lot of these other ones were very small movement throughout the years. And a lot of it was Mm. to build the German war machine in labor camps i do wonder at what point in hitler's mind or in the general nazi plan was it to kill the jewish population like at what point i can't imagine that it was always the plan if you look at the ghettos in retrospect you can look at them as kind of holding centers or holding areas until these camps are built but let's say even before he became chancellor, back when he was just a normal Joe Schmo, what turned that switch for Hitler in his head that he said, you know what would make a better Germany is if we got rid of all the Jewish people. But not even to say, let's get rid of all the Jewish people. To go a step further, let's eliminate all the Jewish people. Let's exterminate Jewish people. Because you could go and you could do what every country and every civilization has done with the Jewish population since apparently the beginning of time and just boot them. You could say, get out. Mm -hmm. But at what point does he look at it and say, well, we're not going to kick them out. We're not going to exile them. We're just going to kill them. I can't help but feel like the answer to your question might be hinted at, if not fully explained in Mein Kampf. And I'm not a Nazi sympathizer, nor do I care enough about Hitler's struggle to read Mein Kampf. But in that book, there might be some of those answers, you know? You have to remember, too, he's not the only one 
He had a left shoulder and a right shoulder. He had other leaders of individual parties within the Nazi party itself. Like you had Heinrich Hindler and Joseph Goebbels. Like those guys were psychopaths. And those guys yeah. could have definitely pushed, especially Goebbels and Himmler, for sure. Himmler was a sick fuck. And hmm. I think having a lot of people like that, you're going to get that support to push this agenda. Between 1933 and 1945, like we just said, Nazi Germany and its allies established more than 44,000 camps and other Jesus. incarceration sites, including the ghettos. The number of prisoners in 1933 to 1934 is difficult to determine, but it is estimated at around 50,000, with the rest perhaps exceeding 100,000. Heinrich Himmler made Theodor Eich the second commander of Dachau, which served as a model for the other camps. Eich wrote the Disciplinary and Penal Code, a manual that outlined harsh punishments for disobedient inmates. Dachau was a brutal camp. I feel like everybody gets really caught up with Auschwitz and Birkenau. Dachau was the third big bad camp that seems to not get as much light. And like Mike just said, it, it served as sort of a model camp that they'd use that to kind of format their other camps. It, it was a nasty place. That's a lot of the argument for Holocaust revisionism is, oh, this didn't happen at Auschwitz. There wasn't gas chambers or there wasn't this or there wasn't that. But it's like 44,000 sites. Yeah, it's hard to keep track at that point. Yeah, you're, you're focusing on one. I think that was the biggest one. And like Frank said, it's the one that people really hyper focus on. As a side thought that I just had. Now, I remember in high school... And maybe my history teacher uh, was very in-depth when it came to World War II teaching. But he told us, and I'm not sure if this is true, but he told us that Hitler went a step further when he was assigning his commanders, his leadership. So he said that what Hitler would do is he would assign a known rapist to lead the women's camps or to be in charge of the women's camps. And he would get a known pedophile to lead the children's camps, and so on and so forth. I guess in a sick way, assigning them their specialty. I don't know how true that is. I would like to look further into that, just to see if that holds any water. When he told us that, I remember just being absolutely blown away. Like on top of the way that you're treating these people, the way that you're torturing them and killing them and destroying them, you are adding this other level of savagery to it to really tear them apart as humans before you end their lives. If that holds any truth, or if any of you know if that holds any truth, please let us know. But that right there mm. i mean i wouldn't put it past hitler i wouldn't put it past the nazi party to do something like that to assign those roles but that right there is just like an extra makes your skin crawl type of thing i've never heard of that i i can't see how that would serve any sort of efficiency like these camps were essentially they were death camps so yeah maybe in the sense of savagery and trying to make them suffer for being who they were, I guess that would serve a purpose, but the purpose of the camp was to like eradicate them. So 
adding that suffering before death. I don't really get it. But like you said, I wouldn't put it past them. No, I wouldn't. I'm not sure if we mentioned it in the first one. There's also like hospitals and orphanages and other medical buildings where the nurses were forced to basically test things on kids and Mm -hmm. starve kids and do all this awful stuff to people, experimentation in hospitals. That's strange and horrible shit. That's kind of the story of like Joseph Mangala, right? That evil fucking doctor. But yeah, you bring up a great point is that it wasn't always just the camps that these things were happening in. There were these ghettos that still did exist and there were the hospitals and there were these different outposts and different places. So that amount of human suffering and torture that they had to go through in so many different places and across so many different countries and land that Germany had taken over. But when you take it as a whole, if you look beyond Auschwitz and Birkenau and Dachau and any of the camps, the zoomed out look at it is even worse than what you're taught and what you know learning in high school yeah and here's where the numbers get a little odd in november of 1936 camps and their prisoners rose to 7750 by the end of 1937 the number of prisoners began to rise once more there was an initial pop and then it just trickled Mm. maybe to make it look like they're not committing war crimes and they're just going through poverty in those countries and By the end of June 1938, the prisoner population had more than tripled in the previous six months by reaching 24,000 inmates. So my question is, are these additions? I would think that they are additions, mostly because if you think about the plan of ghettos and the building of camps, now think by 1940... A few years later, Mm -hmm. Hitler had already had 70 of these camps. In a couple years, those camps will be fully built and operational. So you just ramp up the number of prisoners that you're taking and ramp up the number of people that you're taking into custody, pretty much, in Mm. preparation for sending them to these camps. Yeah, you needed a population to build them, right? In August of 1939, we were looking at about 21,000 inmates. And then in 1942, it had reached up to 80,000. The number of prisoners had more than tripled. This expansion was fueled by the demand for forced labor and later by the Soviet Union's invasion. See, so that number increase is, like you said, for the forced labor, because at this point we're deep into the war and now we're looking for that slave labor essentially to provide help for the military actions and also you want to ramp up those numbers and ramp up those prisoners and ramp up the death tolls in those camps because I would imagine at some point especially by 1942 with the involvement of the different countries that were involved in the world wars and how things were progressing that Germany may have seen an end to this. You're seeing the finish line here for lack of a better term. And you ramp up those numbers to see what you can get out of it before it's all said and done. 
Let's get into some of the theories by the revisionists because they're pretty wild and you gotta know what they're talking about. One theory is that the gas chambers were changed over to bomb shelters or office space by the Germans. But then the Russians came in and rebuilt the entire internal components to make it look like the Germans had gas chambers, which is absolutely insane. Bonkers. That's crazy. <laughs> At the height of the deportations in 1943 to 1944, an average of 6,000 Jews were gassed each day at Auschwitz. Jeez. So that's 2.1 million people in one that's year. That's a staggering number. 365 days, yeah. And again, look at the timeline. 1943, 1944. So now we're getting towards the end of the war. Yeah. Mm. So those numbers are jumping as we said in 1942 and now they're jumping again a year two years later the one thing that gets me about this whole gas chamber argument or even the crematorium argument i believe we spoke about it in chapter one where we talked about well there was many mass graves but what about the piles and piles and piles of belongings you see the pictures of 10 foot high piles of glasses or shoes and hats and wristwatches and clothing toys you know suitcases emptied you just see everybody's one suitcase that they were told to bring with them mm -hmm. emptied out in piles well why were they holding on to all of that they had no issues with burning thousands and thousands of bodies at a time why are they taking the glasses and shoes off of people they probably repurposed everything you know they probably recycled it down and used it towards their german war machine Making MP44s out of shoes. <laughs> but they didn't. Realistically, like, if you look at even the memorials or the Holocaust Museum at Auschwitz, they still have piles and piles of shoes, and they show you. I think they put them in some sort of structure that's built with wood and chicken wire, and they just pile them and pile them and pile them up. Yeah, it looks almost like a zoo enclosure. You know, Frank brings up a good question. Why would you keep that stuff around? It's not necessarily like a war trophy type of thing or a, we're getting a joy out of seeing piles and piles of this stuff around the camps. Like, what is the reasoning for that? They're not going to have Nazi soldiers who need shoes and boots and stuff just come and pick out of these piles of children's shoes. So what is the point and purpose of keeping these things around? If you're going to put people into gas chambers and strip them naked and take their clothing and take their shoes and take all that stuff. And that's another thing. Why are you stripping them down? What would be the purpose if you're just going to end up burning those bodies anyway? Maybe it was a war trophy thing, though. Maybe they did have all of this stuff, like, look at what we're doing, look at how much we've accomplished, look at all of these people's possessions that these possessions no longer have owners to. It could have been. I don't see why. That's a really weird thought process. They took everything. So the stuff that was in piles and piles and piles that was left over, like shoes or glasses, was just things that weren't of value. So those other things were used and repurposed. Imagine a pile of pocket watches made out of gold. You think they didn't steal those? Like those were used. Pocket watches, sure, but we're talking about like shoes. Yeah, well, and glasses, hats. Yeah, I guess. The what are you doing with that? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Hushlings will return after this short message. Greetings, Hustronauts. Put on your best suit. Throw your sunglasses on. 
and join the boys as we investigate the CIA and their involvement in the drug trade. We explore all of the regions and countries they were operating in, the drugs they moved, some whistleblowers, the CIA's claims on the allegations, and of course, some juicy findings on Reddit. Tune in to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour on Monday, July 11th, for Debriefing 52, CIA Drug Trafficking. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. We have some approximate death tolls from camps. The bulk are said to be from Auschwitz, which originally was at 4 million, but now claimed to be 1.2 million by revisionists. Officially, 3.2 million from Poland, 1.5 million from Russia, and 530,000 from Romania. Approximately 250,000 from Czechoslovakia, 195,000 in Germany, 5,000 Bulgarians, 1,000 Norwegians, 1,500 Danish, and this all took place over the course of four years of mass killings. Approximately 5.7 million, yet the common number is 6 million, as we're told, were proposed during the allegations of the Nuremberg trials. As opposed to the belief of 1.2 million from most proponents of the denial. Does it matter that it's 1.2 million versus 6 million? Yeah, it matters. Also, the claim that there weren't enough Jews in Europe to create these statistics. Mm, I don't know about that. <sighs> I'd say no. So how do they know that? How do they know that? That's what I'm wondering. So you're trying to say that there weren't more than 1.2 million Jews in Europe at the time of World War II? That doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And it definitely matters. 1.2 million people as opposed to 6 million people is a stark difference. But 1.2 million people is still a lot of people. Not to put down the numbers. So like, let's look at population rise. If you're looking at the Jewish population of America in 2019, there were roughly 7 million Jews in America. And that's a rise in population as opposed to around 1945, you're seeing like 570,000 roughly as a population of Jewish in America around World War II. Well, did we see a spike after World War II of the Jewish population in America? I would assume yes. Well, we're talking death tolls in general. I don't think we're talking specifically about Jews. And this isn't to back up the revisionist statistics or their standing on the topic. But maybe there wasn't enough Jews in Europe at the time to create a death toll of 6 million. But they weren't only killing Jews. And we need to take that into account. Maybe there wasn't enough. Maybe there was. Who's to say? I don't know. I haven't looked into it necessarily. But even if there wasn't, they weren't only killing Jewish people. They were killing homosexuals. They were killing people of different ethnicities yep. that they didn't consider Aryan. They were killing people that were handicapped. Gypsies was a big population. Communists. Anything that wasn't Aryan German. So looking at it. Mm -hmm. In pre-World War II, the Jewish population of Europe was estimated to be around 9 million. There were definitely enough Jewish population in Europe to get those numbers. That's off official census data. Mm -hmm. Where's the argument? All right, let's move on. There have been some studies, and this is pretty shocking. 
The Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, or known as the Claims Conference, says they performed a 50-state study in America. And get this, 43% of Americans know that Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany through a democratic political process. That's less than half of this country. I don't know how many people took this poll. Yeah, it could be like eight people. Yeah, it could have been like, like 150 people. But realistically, that's actually kind of high. That's higher than I would imagine Americans would get. Really? I don't hold too much hope for Americans lately, so. If you didn't know the answer to that and somebody in a suit comes up to you with a survey and they're like, did you know that Adolf Hitler became chancellor through good old democracy? They just, hey, yeah, yeah. What if it was multiple choice, though? Leave it up to chance, I guess. How many of those 43% know what a chancellor is? <laughs> right, yeah, that's true too. Who? 45% know that approximately 6 million were killed in the Holocaust. I also have to say, they I think they did a study for younger kids now. And these kids, they don't even know about this. This isn't even mentioned. That's another thing that's actually really surprising to me. And I'm not sure why it's happening but from what i've heard kids nowadays are not being taught about the holocaust there are entire populations of children that are going through their entire school years k through 12 and not learning about the holocaust i learned very very minimally about the holocaust and keep in mind i didn't really pay attention in school but I remember the section of time and it was actually in seventh grade and they taught us an English class. We learned in English about the Holocaust. It was probably a couple of weeks of education, maybe two or three weeks, and they topped it off with us watching The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And that was like the end of the Holocaust knowledge that we were presented. Everything and anything that I know about this, I learned like outside of regular curriculum frank is part of that that younger generation they laid out six million jews adolf hitler auschwitz and then we watched the boy in the striped pajamas and that was it and that could contribute as to why most people think that all of these deaths happened at auschwitz yeah so i wonder how many of these revisionists of the holocaust deniers are from that same generation of people gen Not. z maybe late millennial because i know personally i'm obviously older than frank but i know personally going through high school i was very fortunate to have really great history teachers in mm. the schools that i went to and they really dove deep into world war ii and the holocaust and everything that happened around that time i know that i got a pretty in detail lesson about this time frame and this period. I don't know if I was an outlier in the way that I learned about that, but I would imagine if my generation or the people in my age group that were going through high school at the same time, if we all got that same information, it seems like between that gap of when I went to school and when Frank went to school that they just pretty much started to get rid of it. Now, if you look at the time between when Frank went to high school and now, yeah, you know, if they're only teaching him the bullet points of what happened during the Holocaust, imagine what they're teaching them now. Yeah. 
it's probably just a blip. It's World War II happened. Hitler was killing Jewish people in Europe. Yeah, I, we learned about it in middle school as well. But I remember in high school, I think World War II took an entire semester. Wow. In some of those classes, because there were so many layers. We learned about what the Italians were doing, what the Germans were doing, what the Russians were doing. And we spent probably three and a half weeks on each subject and definitely touched on the death camps and stuff. So while we're on the topic of this survey, around three out of 10 Americans are unsure on how many Jews perished during the Holocaust. While one in 10 overestimates the death toll and 15% believe that 3 million or fewer Jews were killed. Again, how much of this is just the shrugging of shoulders and picking a random multiple choice i don't know but still the numbers are scary 58 percent believe that there is a potential for another holocaust in the future 90 percent of those who polled thought that the holocaust occurred while seven percent were unsure and three percent denied that it had even ever happened According to the same poll, one of the most worrisome findings is that 11% of respondents believe Jews committed the Holocaust, which rises to 19% in New York, which is the country's highest population of Jews. If you look at a deeper part of this denial or this revisionism, there is a belief within this that the Jewish people did perpetrate the Holocaust. It was a way for them to garner sympathy from the world population, which set them up later to claim land, which sets them up later to go after funds and money from Germany and reparations and all this other types of financial support, which puts them into positions of power, which goes back to what we talked about in the first chapter of this series. The Jewish cabal is now in charge because of being lifted up by the claims of the Holocaust and being supported with that sympathy, with that support from other people. Yeah. Well, boys, it's time for that paper trail. Now, there is the argument from deniers that there is no documentation at all of the Nazis' involvement in the Holocaust. Yet the hammer of justice says otherwise. Between 1945 and 1949, a total of 13 trials were held in Nuremberg, Germany. The defendants, who included Nazi party officials and high-ranking military officers, as well as German businessmen, lawyers, and doctors, were all charged with crimes against peace and crimes against humanity. Between November 20th of 1945 and October 1st of 1946, 24 people were charged as well as six Nazi organizations found to be criminal. One of the indicted men was deemed medically unfit to stand trial, and several others committed suicide before the trial began. Obviously, Hitler and his two top aides, Heinrich Himmler and Joseph Goebbels. The world's better for it. Where's the proof, they ask, during these trials? Great question. While there is no formal documentation, there were documents. And they include a wide variety of letters, memos, blueprints, orders, bills, speeches, train schedules, and statistical summaries generated by the SS. There's also photographs and photographs by survivors. 
as well as aerial photography. There's also 3,000 tons of documents that were gathered for these Nuremberg trials, and almost none of the defendants on trial denied the existence of systematic murder. Historians have searched for a signed document by Hitler authorizing the final solution, which Holocaust deniers used to prove the Holocaust did not occur. <laughs> That's kind of asinine, really, mm. if you really think about it. Do you really think that Hitler had a memo drawn up and he was like, all right, I'm going to put my stamp of approval to start systematically killing Jews? Who are you handing that into? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but even even more so, like you had 70 camps built. That's undeniable. There were 70 camps. There were yeah. camps built throughout Germany for and even if you want to say that they weren't death camps, okay, let's say that they were work camps. Either way, they were built. That in mm. itself is proof that you wanted this to happen. If you didn't have Hitler's approval on it, that doesn't mean that it wasn't going to happen either way. It doesn't take away from the fact that there were still millions of people that were killed at these camps, whether Hitler knew it or not, which he knew. But very weird. Agreed. Such an odd argument, though. The signature's not there. It must not have happened. Yeah. Congress didn't approve it, so it's, it never it's happened. It's like, it doesn't make sense to me. That whole argument doesn't make sense to me. And if he did, you think that they wouldn't have destroyed that in the oh, later stages yeah, of the I'm war. I'm sure. That also goes along with how many documents and how many things were destroyed by the Nazis, especially knowing that the war was coming to an end, knowing that they were on their heels against the Allied forces, how much of that stuff was destroyed I'm just sure. to keep it out of the hands of the Allies. I'm sure they cover their tracks. According to Michael Shermer and Alex Grobman, Hitler signed a letter on his personal stationery authorizing the extermination of handicapped German citizens in 1939. If he's willing to do that to Germans, he's willing to do that to Jews which led a German bishop to raise a public outcry over the program, forcing Hitler to mostly abandon it. As a result, Hitler would have avoided signing any document that required his signature. Makes sense. There you go. And that happened in 1939, so you're talking if he's writing the final solution, probably, what, in the early 30s, 33 mm -hmm. or so? If he's doing something like this in 39... Then in 33, this would have happened again, too. I think it's a crap argument. We can't forget the tens of thousands of eyewitnesses, mostly, and unfortunately, the ones who have survived are probably no longer with us. Probably less than 100 people on this planet that are still alive from that time. And that includes the survivors and the ones who witnessed the extermination process firsthand. The perpetrators like the Nazi leaders, the SS guards, and local townspeople around the area, not to mm. mention the nurses and other aides that were working at these camps. Yeah, all of those people were obviously paid off and crisis actors. Paid by the Jewish cabal, obviously. They're behind it. Clearly. And of course, there is physical evidence such as camp ruins or mass grave sites like Mystery Mike was just talking about. Even census data, as the Jewish population in Europe was around 6 million lower after World War II. I, I just don't see how you could argue with that. With 2.7 million of those perished at Auschwitz. Hmm. 
I don't know how you can look at that and try to explain that away. Because they would say that the census data was altered. All right, what about the camp ruins and the mass graves? Like, how do you explain away a mass grave site? They would just call them work camps, and they would say that mass graves were people who died of starvation or uh, were sick. Okay, now how is that not a holocaust? Because people who died of sickness and disease were not necessarily intentionally killed. They might have been not looked after or taken care of. I'm playing devil's advocate, obviously. I I don't, I know. I'm not I trying know. to argue for this. We have entered the Reddit segment of our debriefing. For those of you who aren't aware, some of our new listeners, our Reddit section is where we combed through the Reddit pages to find some of the outlandish, weird, or lesser-known conspiracies regarding the subject matter that we've gone through, in this case, the Holocaust denial. Now, we will crack open our Reddit section with a man named David Duke, who is an American white supremacist, anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, far-right politician, convicted felon, and former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. He was surprisingly even a member of the Louisiana House of Representatives for the Republican Party from 1989 to 1992. Wasn't Biden good friends with David Duke? Or was that Bush? Um, One of the presidents. I both of them. Many of the presidents. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about recently. Wasn't Biden, like, friends with one of the very well-known Ku Klux Klan leadership? Probably. Probably. I don't know. Might be misremembering. That was an interesting little tidbit. In our first chapter, we mentioned that a lot of these white supremacists are not necessarily uneducated. They're seated in power. And just to see this guy with all his weird and crappy accolades that comes with him, he was in the House of Representatives for four years. Where exactly does a Grand Wizard sit in terms of the Ku Klux Klan? It's pretty high at the top. Pretty high, yeah. Not saying that I know the uh, the leadership tree of the KKK. Shouldn't they be known as the KKKK? The Knights of the Ku Klux Klan? Shouldn't that be four Ks? It was a mouthful. It's just one more K. It's the of the. Okay. That ruins it. You can't be like K of the KKK. They couldn't. It was the education <laughs> system. They couldn't figure it out. Yeah. There's also the idea that Anne Frank's diary was a forgery written by her father. Interesting take. I have heard this one before. Yep. Pretty much saying that Anne Frank didn't exist. I hate to say it. That could be possible. It definitely could be. But either way. In 1975, Richard Harwood, an English Holocaust denier, called Anne's diary a, quote, propaganda legend and just one more fraud in a whole series of frauds perpetrated in support of the Holocaust legend and the saga of the six million. Wow. Yeah, seriously. Here's the thing we haven't really said anything about is that in order to be a Holocaust denier, I think you kind of have to be an anti-Semite. Yeah, you have to. there's There's no way. Therein lies the blame game in that kind of like evil take on it where you think that it's being advantageous to Jews and that they're the ones perpetrating this lie. We mentioned like a couple people in the first chapter that were avid Holocaust deniers. 
and they also claim that they were not anti-Semites. But it feels like it goes hand in hand, very much so. Maybe it goes both ways. Like, all right, so you're an anti-Semite, so you believe that the Holocaust didn't happen. Or you start looking into Holocaust denial and you are all of a sudden convinced that the Holocaust didn't happen and now you're an anti-Semite. What a journey. I don't know. The stages of becoming an anti-Semite. Fred Laucher, who was the guy who aided in advancements of electric chairs and known Holocaust denier, wrote the Lecher Report. Prior to writing the report, he traveled to several sites of structures identified as gas chambers in 1988. He collected samples from walls and ceilings and floors without permission. He used a chisel and hammer to chip and scrape off pieces of the masonry. What a dick. Laucher claimed that the relatively low concentration of cyanide residue measured in his samples of the remains of the Auschwitz gas chambers compared to his samples of the delousing chambers in which clothes were deloused using the same gas, hydrogen cyanide, ruled out the possibility that they were used to kill humans, although he was unaware that they had been <laughs> rebuilt entirely. Fred, you're an idiot. Imagine you just have no idea, and they're just like, Fred, it's been rebuilt, dude. At what point do you turn around and just go, my bad, my bad, sorry guys, no, no, it was just, no, no. <laughs> All right, boys. What say you we get into our final thoughts where we give our final thoughts on Holocaust denial? Let's start with Declassified Dave. Let us know what you think between chapter one and chapter two as a whole. What do we think about Holocaust denial? I think that the entire thing is a bunch of bullshit. The only thing that you can... I guess have an argument about in my mind is do we know the exact numbers but we've asked the question what does it matter people got killed so for me I'm not gonna go down the road of being that heavy conspiracy theorist because then that would make me a white supremacist of thinking none of this ever happened and I believe that the Holocaust happened and I believe that it was systematic, and I don't believe that the Jews caused it. That's pretty much my final thought. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Following the information that we've seen from Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, I will say that a lot of the things that are brought up are paper-thin arguments. I, I can't understand how someone can think that this didn't happen. There's plenty of evidence to support that it did happen. There's plenty of evidence to support that there were, at the very least, 1.2 to 2 million people that were killed. Like Dave said, people were definitely killed. I really can't understand, especially with the witnesses, with the people that have testified that they were there, the survivors, the SS officers that were a part of it that testified against that in the Nuremberg trials and everything that piles up in the category of evidence of a Holocaust. And like I said, I think that draws back to a very anti-Semitic place if that's where your argument is coming from. This one for me is not one that I really have to think too much about. Slick Frank Sanders, give us your final thoughts. 
Frogs. Final thought. Final thoughts. Holocaust denial. The Holocaust definitely 100% happened. And like we said over our second part just now and our first part, sure, maybe some of the numbers and statistics might not be on point. And to an extent, I think it's okay to question history and to question exactly what we're being taught. I don't think that would directly and immediately make you a white supremacist for looking into this sort of thing. But if you do look into it and you're presented with the facts and you continue to go down that rabbit hole, you might become a white supremacist. There's no denying it. The camps were built. There was literally railways built for years and years and years that went directly from the ghettos of Poland to concentration camps. These railways had no other meaning. They were bringing people to these camps, and in these camps were mass grave sites, were gas chambers. Sure, maybe Hitler didn't sign off on some document, but I don't think that disproves that this had ever happened. The only thing I'm going to say is I think that I want to look a little bit more into the Anne Frank thing. And I don't think that should be used as a defense that the Holocaust didn't happen. In saying that Anne Frank possibly never existed and that her book could have been forged by her father, I think that lends to more of a greed thing to her father and that he could have made money off of it somehow. I don't think that the whole Anne Frank diary was fake is lending to the fact that the Holocaust didn't happen. I just think it might be an interesting little side story within the Holocaust. Holocaust happened, and the majority of the deniers, in my opinion, are most likely white supremacists. There you have it, Hushlings. Those are our final thoughts. And I think that's going to conclude our jury duty on this Holocaust denial episode. Was there anything that we missed? Anything that we should have discussed? Did we miss a box of files? Let us know your thoughts on the topic. You can always reach out to us and you can always talk to us about any of our episodes by emailing us at our email contact at hushhushsociety.com. Join us for our next debriefing where we perform some espionage and cover CIA drug trafficking operations. Streaming Monday, July 11th. And do not fret. Another exclusive debriefing will soon be available where we will tap into the unknown and explore the phone calls of Charles Peck, who spoke to those from beyond the grave. And that will be exclusive to Patreon on Thursday, July 21st. Tune in on August 15th, as we promised, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another live debriefing for Debriefing 55 where we will be exploring the conspiracy iceberg chart. As we said, make sure to join us 7 p.m. Eastern. If you are not part of our Facebook group, make sure to go on to Facebook. Find us, Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour group. Join over there. We have postings pretty much every day, and that is also where we live stream our live episodes. One last thing before you go, keep those pepperoni slice eyelids peeled for a live Twitter spaces. If you're not familiar with live Twitter spaces, if you have a Twitter account, you can join us live on spaces where we will chat kind of like live shows when we do Facebook, except less formal, 
more loose, loosey-goosey party. You can join. You can be a speaker. You can chat with us. We can chat with you. You can tell us what you think about the show. You can tell us what you think about your favorite conspiracies, what you believe, and uh, everything under the sun that you want to talk to us about. Tell us about your dog. We'll also be working on some Instagram Lives, which is the same basic idea, and be giving away random giveaways, t-shirts, stickers, mugs, anything that you can think of. And thank you all Hushlings for joining us again for another debriefing with the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.